Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday! Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. First Amendment Friday is my favorite day of the week because we open up the phone lines and every subject is fair game. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, and believe me, with that DOJ report and Joe Biden's crash and burn news conference last night to try to explain away the senile rating that he got from his own DOJ, and I'll tell you what, there is a lot to talk about. 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. But just consider the basics. So yesterday, the DOJ comes out with a report and says, yes, Joe Biden stole classified documents. Now, I will admit the special counsel, Robert Hur did not use the word steal or stole. But as far as I'm concerned... If you take something that you don't own, that you have no legal authority to take, say your next door neighbor's car, that is considered stealing the car. If you hang on to it, it's most definitely stealing. In this case, you've got Senator Joe Biden back in the 1970s who admits he's even done it on television that he stole classified documents that he had no authority to take. And he couldn't use the excuse he uses today of senility. Uh, back in the 70s, he took this stuff and he knew he was taking things that he had no legal right to take or to keep. And then when he decided, when he was putting together his memoir, in other words, when he was having a ghostwriter write it for him, because that's how former people in big public office make some money as they write a book, only they don't write it, they just cash the checks. But he hands some of these documents to the ghostwriter and says, by the way, be careful with these, they're classified. So he knew what he was doing, and yet now the DO, the Biden DOJ says, He's he's just a an old man, a well-intentioned old man who has a memory that is so bad that uh, they can't possibly uh, indict him or prosecute him because he'd show up in front of a jury and he'd be like that chin gigante. Uh, it's been years since I looked that story up, but I looked it up yesterday. This mob boss who managed to convince a court, I think it was in New York City, it might have been Jersey, uh, that he was so senile, he drooled and he couldn't talk and all the rest of that. They found out he was faking later on. I don't think Joe Biden is faking it. I think he really is senile. So then he holds a news conference, Joe Biden did last night, to try to dispel all this thinking that he doesn't know what he's talking about, that he doesn't remember when he was vice president of the United States, and that only ended about seven years ago. He doesn't remember when his son, Bo Biden, died, and that was nine years ago. He can't remember much of anything. He can't remember who the president of France is or the president of Germany. And then, in the middle of the news conference last night, he manages to say that he's been negotiating with the president of Mexico about getting more aid through to Gaza which caused a whole bunch of wags out there today to redraw the map of Israel. You know, instead of having uh, Syria and Jordan to the north and, and Jordan to the, uh, to the east as well, and then Egypt to the south, you put Mexico down there because on Joe Biden's map, it's Mexico to the south of Israel. 
that he's rewriting the maps. He's changing the map of the world. Anyway, it's First Amendment Friday. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. A shout-out to our friends in Anchorage who listen to Great Talk Radio on KVNT. That's AM 1020. And, of course, you can find uh, my show there as well, Monday through Friday. Let's go first to Tim. Hey, Tim, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Good afternoon, Lars. Uh, two main points. I'll be real quick. Sure. The, pre- the, the DOJ gave the president an out for prosecution based on his mental capacity. Yet here he is arguing he has good mental capacity. So that means he's arguing that he should be prosecuted. That was the whole basis. I agree. And the next piece, I'm, yeah. So and then the next piece, I'm a retired Marine Corps officer Thank and I dealt with classified material. And back when, like when Hillary's problems hit the fan and everything, negligence is a major, major issue when it comes to handling classified material. I mean, willfulness isn't the only cause in it. And even when Hillary was dealing with stuff, there was information that even if you had knowledge of somebody else handling. Um, material wrong, you're potentially open to prosecution. So anybody and everybody that was connected and remotely had knowledge he had stuff in here is arguably subject to prosecution. It's total garbage that he's not held to a standard that I've seen service people get railed over much less infringement than decades of piles of high-level, utmost security being in somebody's freaking garage. And by the way, Tim, do you remember the name Jack Texera? Do you, not that remembering that one. Okay, Jack Texera is a National Guardsman from Massachusetts. He got busted a bit ago, about a year and a half ago, and he's sitting in jail right now. He's looking at six charges of taking classified yes. documents and then releasing them. And as I understand the backdrop to that, I don't have any special connection to the case, but apparently he got he got upset and this is oftentimes how people like me get tips on things i'll have a police officer who gets angry at the way that his department is handling one thing or another and he or she will come to me and said lars take a look at this just don't connect it back to me those are legitimate tips when it comes to national security stuff that's a bit different but apparently his bugaboo was that he saw the Pentagon publicly saying, oh, we're going to go to Ukraine, we're going to help them win against Russia, while privately they were saying, oh, yeah, yeah. this that this place is a, is a mess, we're not going to be able to do any good at all. And, you know, that's happened before, where the military officials of the United States, and I understand the need to keep secrets from our opponents, but if you're telling the American public, things are going to go great in Ukraine, and privately you're saying, this thing is a goat rope, and, and we don't know what we're going to do with it. The American public deserves to know, especially when you're asking the American public for tens of billions of dollars. He got angry about that, is my understanding of the motivation. Now, is that the right motivation for then breaking the law and breaking your oath? And, and No, it's not. But he's looking at up to 60 years in prison and a million and a half dollars in fines. Joe Biden takes classified documents for half a century, all the way to 1974. He hands some of them to the guy who's ghostwriting his memoirs. I don't know what he got paid for the memoirs. But, you know, he was doing it out of a commercial motive, at least in part. I think he shared some of that with his son, Hunter, who then wrote some of what he got from dear old dad into memos to burnish his reputation with the Burisma Natural Gas Company that was paying Hunter a million bucks a year for doing absolutely nothing. And you say, which one is worth? 
worse, the 22-year-old Jack Texera who's looking at 60 years in the joint, or Joe Biden who gets forgiven for a half a century of stealing documents and, and throwing them in cardboard boxes in his garage? Yes, sir. Well, you remember the Navy guy that had the picture on the submarine? Yes, yes. I think he and went to G- he went to Leavenworth. He, he did. He did. Right? And and you know what? He was a guy. Just so people know, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Tim. This young guy was serving in the Navy. I've been on Boomers as well. I've been able to see, and there's some cool stuff on there. But he took some pictures saying, "Hey, here's the engine room where I work." He wanted to show his friends. He thought it was cool. That's all he was doing. But it was a violation of the rules. He goes to prison. Joe Biden goes to ice cream. Back in just a moment. It's First Amendment Friday, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. To the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And in honor of our senile chief executive, here's the question for today. Found at Lars Larson Show on X, also on our website at LarsLarson.com. Joe Biden's own Department of Justice says he is too senile to face prosecution. Is he too senile for the presidency then? I would answer that one, yes. You can answer any way you like. You'll find the question, as I said, at Lars Larson Show on X and also on our website. It's always brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined the group. You should, too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC is better, better for you and better for America. By the way, some good news. Canada has now delayed the extension of its assisted suicide program to people suffering solely from mental illness. Wow, isn't that great news? Canada's decided not to kill off the mentally ill. I mean, if this is what counts as good news these days, you know, with all these governments, including a lot of state governments around America that have decided that doctor-assisted suicide is very attractive, let me offer one little casual warning to you. Now with the government providing insurance through Medicaid, Medicare, and a lot of other government-funded mechanisms like Obamacare, The government now has a dog in the fight in making sure that you don't cost them too much money. So be aware of that as they start to expand this crazy doctor-assisted suicide. I've had plenty of people say, well, Lars, you're only opposed to it because of your faith beliefs. Well, that's a piece of it. I do not approve of suicide. I especially don't approve of state-sanctioned suicide and state-sanctioned aided and abetted suicide when the state says... Yeah, if you uh, don't feel well, if you're not happy with your life, if you've got a terminal illness, well, guess what? We all have a terminal illness. It's called life. And now Canada will off you for any number of reasons if you walk in and ask. 
And Canada has a dog in the fight, too, because every time they kill somebody who has a major medical malady, whether that malady was going to kill them next week, next year, or a decade from now, Canada saves money. So when the state, in this case Canada, uh, the, 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 the state, the government of Canada has a financial benefit when you kill yourself, you don't want to do that. And they want to offer it to you. Be very wary of that. Let's go to Alan. Alan, is First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Yeah, hi, hi Lars. I really appreciate your show, man. It's, it's, uh, I, I, it's nice to be able to hear the truth. The reason I called in today, and I agree with um, with what you just said about the the suicide. Who who declares uh, who's mentally ill and who's not? So I mean that that's a it ends up being itself. the state. I mean, in in yeah. other words, if Canada says you're mentally ill and they will off people for being mentally ill or allow them. I mean, technically, Canada is saying we're letting you kill yourself. <clears throat> but when they give you the medical permission to go to a doctor and get an injection and be killed, what they're really doing is it's state sanctioned murder. Wouldn't you agree? I agree 100 percent. And I just wanted to uh, thank Tim for his call and the, that whole conversation and thank them military for their service. And on Biden, um, my question is, because I've been watching the news pretty a lot, and and, um, it's nice to have a station that tells the truth, and also that you open it up to the naysayers, which uh, sometimes... We love naysayers on this. But what do you want to say about Biden? Oh, I wanted to say real quick, um, when he committed this, um, when he took these documents, um, he was not in the condition mentally that he's in now. So wouldn't True. it still be putable? No. And, and I'll tell you why, Alan. It's for, for, for example, if you went to some other criminal offense like murder, if somebody committed a murder in America, in most places, I think in every place in America, uh, but then by the time they catch up to the person, the person has developed severe mental illness and they're not able to aid in their own defense. They may be found guilty, but for insanity is a common finding. So you take you take the defendant as they stand today. So Joe Biden commits, and I consider this, these are crimes. He stole these documents because, and I know people say, well, you want to say he willfully retained them. That's like saying a car thief willfully retained your automobile. No, he took them when he had no legal authority to take them, and he kept them. Now, that's that to me, that's stealing. So he steals these documents. You're, you're right. When his brain, you know, could actually connect sentences like it did, you know, in decades gone by. Uh, the fact that he's now de mentally diminished to the point where he can't remember a lot of things like when he was vice president. I can remember when he was vice president. So the fact that he can't, you know, he has this lack of mental capacity today. The DOJ is saying, you put that guy in front of a jury, and the jury is going to feel sorry for him, and they're going to let him go. And unfortunately, you have to take the defendant as you find him today, not like he was at the time he committed the crime. Let's go to Benjamin in Alabama. Hey, Benjamin, welcome to First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Hi, Lars. I love the show. I listen to it all the time on my way home from work. Thank I you, sir. Listening. I was just uh, tuned in to the Canadian-assisted suicide. Yep. And if if doctors go that route of just instead of going through the motions of learning what's wrong with the person, and isn't that a, one of the ways that we find medical breakthroughs is trying to diagnose and save somebody, and and instead of 
doing that, they're just going to take, I mean, it's an easy route for both the doctor and the patient, but it's the wrong route. I, I agree with you, Benjamin, because think about all the people who over the years have had something terribly wrong with them. They go to the doctor and the doctor says, we'll try to figure it out. And over a period of time, they may figure it out. I mean, I, I remember that it was I think it was the early 60s when I was a baby uh, that they uh, they came up with heart transplant. And I think the first one that was done, I think it was a guy named Christian Bernard was the doctor who did it. And I think the patient might have lasted for a few days. Well, these days, I mean, by the time I was a reporter 30 years ago, I saw my first heart transplant up front. You know, I was standing in the operating room watching the doctor do it. Those patients could routinely get 20 years or more of life out of a heart transplant. But you're right. Without the, without the attempt to save the life you know, back in the 60s, saying maybe we can figure out a way to put a uh, to transplant a human heart. At the time, people said, well, we don't know how we can make that work. Well, it, it took some time to figure it out. But you're right. If they say, well, everybody who's got a terminal illness, we'll let them kill themselves. It'll be cheaper. And you start doing that. What's the incentive to ever try to heal people again? And I thought the doctors used to take an oath that said, first, do no harm. Well, how in the world could a doctor sign up to kill people under euthanasia or doctor-assisted suicide if they are serious about that oath to first do no harm? I agree. It's a state of the awareness of the world right now, and it's turning turning south. Yeah, and imagine this, Benjamin, one of the medical stat or financial stats I'm aware of. They say that for the average person, you know, who doesn't just, you know, not wake up one morning, the, the three most expensive medical months of your life are the last three meaning that most people get to a point things start failing could be heart could be lungs could be a lot of things and those last three months they can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars imagine what happens when all the bean counters who are running these government-run health programs canada's got nationalized medicine america thank god has not yet but imagine when they start saying you know, if we could get just get just get these people who are in the last four or five months of their life to just kill themselves, we'd save a ton of money. You know they're going to do that math, and and it's absolutely yes, evil. I 100% agree with you. Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons, uh, Benjamin, thanks for listening in Alabama, by the way. It's one of the reasons I've always told people you do not want nationalized health care unless you want to have a shorter lifespan. And if you don't believe me, Take a look at the lifespan estimates for people in Scotland under the, uh, I think they call it the NIH, or in Canada under these programs where they say, oh, yeah, you can see a doctor. You just might have to wait nine months or ten months to see the doctor. Well, what what's going to happen if I get seriously ill in the nine months? They say, well, you're probably just going to die, and then we won't have to do anything for you. It's First Amendment Friday, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Now, we tend not to think... the work so you don't have to bringing the political heat 
He's Lars Larson. Welcome back to the program. It's First Amendment Friday. It's my pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to take your phone calls and your emails. Before I go back to calls, let me tell you about a story, a study that's just been released. And I read through it today. This is fascinating stuff, and I can't give you all of it, but it's from the Heartland Institute, which is a good conservative group. And what they did was they wanted to look at votes that were cast in the 2020 election. And I know some of you are rolling your eyes right now saying, Lars, you're not going to try to persuade us again that the 2020 election was not valid. Yes, I am. It's been my position since the get-go. And every time I get a call from people who say, well, hold on a second, you're not trying to persuade us that there was cheating or wrongdoing in that election that brought about the apparent election of Joe Biden, even though Donald Trump actually won. And I'd say, yes, that is exactly what I'm going to tell you. And they say, well, but it all went to court. It did not go to court. There were 60 cases. Most of them decided on procedural grounds, not based on what was in them. But what did Heartland do? They went out and they called voters and they did surveys and they checked to see of the voters who voted, especially those who voted by mail, how many of them did things that were illegal in casting their ballot. And if you wonder what that the definition of that would be, let's say you cast a ballot in the 2020 election and you say I cast a mail ballot, but I didn't fill it out. I had my wife or husband fill it out. That's illegal. And in most cases, there are some exceptions if you have a disability. What if you filled it out and you didn't actually get it to the elections office on the day that it was due under law? Well, that would also rule it out. Let's say you had moved within the last few months. Georgia is a good example. In Georgia, they'll give you a 30-day grace. But if you move from one address to another address, after 30 days, you are not allowed to vote, even if you still get a ballot to vote, if you're still registered at the old address. So lots and lots of ways that you could disqualify those votes. They found at the Heartland Institute, 28% of votes in the 2020 election were cast illegally. And they said male voting in that election had jumped to 43%. And by the way, they jumped to 43% where they were sending out ballots and allowing people to vote by mail in contradiction to state law. And if you wonder, well, why is that important? I'll tell you why it's important. The U.S. Constitution says to every one of the 50 states, you can have whatever laws you want to regulate the, and run the, the election you want to hold. But the laws have to be passed by the state legislature, which means it's in the hands of the people's representatives. And if you say, well, but during the pandemic, what if the governor wanted to change the rules? The governor has to go to the legislature and they have to vote it through. What if a judge wants it changed? Go to the legislature. What about the Secretary of State or the elections director? What if they say, we really need to do this election differently? You go to the state legislature. So what Heartland found was that up to 28% of the votes that were cast in 2020 were cast illegally, and that's more than enough to have changed the result. They say, but for that, Joe Biden would not be sitting in the White House right now. It would be Donald Trump's second term. To your calls now. Let's start with Leilani. Hey, Leilani, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Thank you. Um, I just want to touch on the assisted suicide. Um, I'm like you. I don't believe in suicide, but I believe it's a very personal um, thing. But you think of all the people that have tried to commit suicide and failed, and they have stated later, I'm so glad that it did not happen. I'm glad I failed at it. 
Well, yep. if you have these doctor-assisted suicides, there's no second chance. You, you can't go back and say, I'm glad it failed. It's too late at that point. And by the way, Leilani, at least in the early years of assisted suicide, there are now a number of states that allow it. They're, they're trying to expand that. But in the early years of assisted suicide, and I covered that issue, there were patients who would go to their doctor and the doctor would prescribe pills. I still, I don't know that there's a single state in America that does it by lethal injection. Canada does do it that way. America does not. What can happen and does happen, and, and in fact, I've covered stories where this has happened. Somebody intending assisted suicide takes the pills. And then they end up throwing up or then they end up, you know, changing their mind. Uh, and they've had right. some real crash and burns where, let me describe this, it's so horrifying. Somebody in your family says, I'm going to end my life because I have this terminal illness. I'm going to be dead, the doctors tell me, in a year or two. So they take the pills. And then say the person begins to not die, but begins to go to, to seizures because of the results of the drugs. So they call 911, and then the person is taken off to the hospital, and they're revived in some cases, sometimes damaged. And these are horror stories that the mainstream media normally will not tell you about. They, they don't want to tell those stories. All they want to tell you is assisted suicide is beautiful and it's graceful and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a compassionate thing to do. They always want to paint it in rosy colors, and it isn't right. rosy at all. Right. I don't believe any suicide is beautiful or colorful. It's a taking of a life. Yes, it is. And when it's a taking of the life sanctioned by the state, as far as I'm concerned, it's state-sanctioned murder. Let's go to Seth in Alabama. Hey, Seth, welcome to First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? Lars, I want to talk to you about the assisted suicide. I have two buddies that, that tried it. Really? And was not able to feel it. And, hey, they'll tell you it was the worst mistake of their lives. Are they still with us? They are. And they seen. they said they seen stuff in that time. That uh, it was just a miracle of God that brought them back. Well, I'm glad to hear that they made it back because, as far as I'm concerned, this is and and it's especially it's especially awful if somebody tries it on their own. But it's even more awful, as far as I'm concerned, when somebody does it with the assistance of the state. That makes no sense whatsoever. Let's go to Connie. Hey, Connie, welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Well, I just want to thank you for your show. I used to be a real naysayer <laughs> and against Trump and everything, and a pro-Democrat. And I've been listening to your show the last month or so, and oh. I've gotten a lot of facts from you that have just enlightened me and made me see the truth. And I wonder why do these national media stations not tell the whole truth uh they let their own personal politics get to them and connie it's a subject that i i feel very uh, when i was a reporter i was a reporter for a long time and i kept my own opinion out of the stories there were stories i did on people that i i couldn't stand i didn't like i didn't like what they were doing but my job wasn't to put my opinion in Today, uh, doing what I do today, this is very clearly labeled an opinion show. 
So, and in fact, sometimes I get emails from people saying, you put too much of your own opinion in that show. And I say, well, it's an opinion show. It's like saying you serve too much steak at that steakhouse. It's built in. But reporters who are with conventional news organizations, newspapers, television, even radio, if they're reporters and they're not doing an opinion show, they're not supposed to put their own opinion in there at all. They're, They're supposed to leave their opinion out And I remember I learned from some very good people in the business who would say, Lars, your opinion has no business being in that story. If you think somebody should give voice to a particular point of view, go interview somebody. So if you go interview the mayor of a town and he tells you about a program and you think it's the dumbest program you've ever heard of that is going to waste a lot of money, then find somebody who will say that, who has some authority uh, to counter what the mayor is saying, But you don't get to throw your own opinion in for that. But, Connie, if I've helped you out, I'm glad to hear it. It's First Amendment Friday. It's the Lars Larson Show. And if you want to weigh in, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Coming up, we'll talk about why Joe Biden has gone so far south and soft on Iran. When the line is drawn in the sand, he's the one that crosses it. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. You wonder about the Biden administration, which has been, uh, well, coming under fire, uh, and I think appropriately so, because of what it's not doing to address the uh, actors who are actually attacking American service members. I know they've gone after the Houthi rebels and others in uh, in Syria and places like that. But what they're not doing is going after the funds who are funding the folks who are funding and directing all this activity. And that would be Iran. So I thought we'd talk about it with Michael Duran, who is senior fellow and director of the Center for Peace and Security in the Middle East. Mr. Duran, welcome back to the program. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Is it fair to say that the Biden administration has gone soft on Iran despite all these provocations? Uh, I think that's very fair. And they haven't gone soft. They've been soft all along from the moment they came in. They're, they're, they have a dream of reaching an accommodation with Iran over the whole Middle East, a kind of mutual non-belligerency between Washington and Tehran. And they, they don't want to abandon that dream. So as our, our forces come increasingly under attack by forces that are basically under the command and control of Iran, uh, they're responding in order to uh, in order to uh, uh, deflect criticism and to show that they're doing something. But they're taking very, very, um, uh, very, very. They're taking care not to harm any Iranians and to signal to Tehran that they don't want to escalate with Iran itself. And by doing that, they assure that they won't actually deter anyone. Michael, am I understanding you right that they somehow see this as the linchpin to Middle East peace? Because I can imagine a lot of players that might have a good, uh, you know, good effect on Middle East peace. Iran is not at the top of that list. And why, why would they view them this way? Because it seems though they've been, they've been sort of the, the, one of the worst troublemaking states in the Middle East for as long as I can remember. 
I know it's it, it's hard to believe, but that is indeed how they how they see it. You can get a a, a kind of perfect snapshot of how they view the region from a fall foreign affairs article that the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan wrote, in which he says that the Middle East has been quieter uh, under the Biden administration than it has been for decades, basically because of this outreach to Iran. At that moment, this is written just before October 7th, before Hamas uh, uh, attacked Israel. And that at that moment, they were particularly proud that the Houthis and the Saudis were on the cusp of a, of a peace deal that basically had been brokered quietly by the, by, by the United States. Of course, that all blew apart in a, uh, uh, in a second. So what the, it, to understand the mentality of the administration, they see, they see that there was a, a kind of, um, there was a kind of uh, rapprochement with Tehran that we were, was just within reach. And then Gaza blew it apart. So they, they, they understand that, uh, uh, that there's this friction now with Iran over Gaza, but they want to try to, they want to try to de-escalate the Gaza war so that they can get back to the business of cutting a deal with Tehran. That's, okay, how, so that's how they see it. I'm talking to Michael Duran, who's senior fellow and director of the Center for Peace and Security in the Middle East. So here's the thing I don't understand. Iran, the biggest state sponsor of terrorism, puts the money into these terrorist groups. Uh, the, I, I assume, I don't, I don't know if you've seen the, it, but it was a couple of months ago, the w- reporting of the Wall Street Journal that said that literally t- uh, Iran brought in about 500 members of Hamas in September before the October 7th attacks, and they gave them specific training equipment, the whole nine yards, and they must have known that when Hamas carried out this slaughter, that that Iran didn't just fund it, that they aided and abetted in the training and the planning, and it sounds like even the tactics of what was, you know, the uh, motorcycles were used, paragliders were used, that, that they were directly involved in this. They must have known that this was going to blow up the region in Tehran, right? Uh, oh, sure. In Tehran they did, sure. But the Americans, and actually the Israelis too, were under uh, this... Uh, delusion at the time that um, that we were now dealing with a, a kinder, gentler Hamas uh, that wanted to be a manager, manager of Gaza more than it wanted to be the, uh, the leader of a jihad against Israel and the West. Um, and so we miscalculated. The, um, the Biden administration looks at Iran. You and I look at Iran and we see a very aggressive expansionist power. Yes. The Biden administration looks at it and they see a power that's very weak uh, and it, that is just trying to hold on to what it has. They see a status quo power that talks a lot of nasty talk, but really doesn't have the wherewithal to do anything about it. I think that's a big mistake, but that's how they see it. Well, except that, uh, Michael, the, if, if, if you accept, OK, the, the, this is a weak power. It might have been on the, you know, in January of 21 when Biden came in because the Trump sanctions, as I understand it, had taken Tehran down to where they were on fumes. You know, they barely had any money. They weren't getting anything done. But since then, Joe Biden not enforcing the oil selling sanctions and unfreezing assets, to my understanding, has benefited Tehran to the tune of like 50 billion in oil sales, another six in unfrozen assets. They've got all kinds of stuff. And apparently once they got extra cash, they said, let's start funding some more terrorism. 
So you would think that that alone would convince the White House, yeah, we, we got this whole thing wrong because we thought these guys were barely able to maneuver. Then we gave them a bunch of cash, and the first thing they spent money on was more terrorism. Uh, Lawrence, of course, I, I agree with you 100%. And I, I'd also add that the, because of the drones, ballistic missiles, and cruise missiles that Iran is developing, and these are very serious systems, they're serious systems, and because of their alliance with Russia, they're getting a lot better uh, very, very quickly. The Iranians now have the ability to overwhelm the defenses of anybody in the Middle East, including us. They have an offense-dominant military regime they've set up. And the only way to counter, this is just military science. This isn't an analysis. This is just fact. The only way you can counter an offense-dominant regime is through offensive countermeasures. You can't respond to this with purely defensive measures or you invite more attacks. And that's the, 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 the answer that the Biden administration wants to offer to all of our allies. And the way it wants to behave itself is to constantly de-escalate and use missile defense instead of carrying out offensive com uh, uh, countermeasures that will actually deter the Iranians. Because I'm trying to imagine a Tower 22-style attack, except instead of, you know, a, a few drones, you've got dozens or hundreds or thousands, and the kind of thing that that could do to even a major power like the United States. Michael, thanks so much. I appreciate the insights. We're going to have you back on sometime very soon. That's Michael Duran, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for Peace and Security in the Middle East. It's First Amendment Friday. Your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. The Lars Larson Show. Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday! Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Friday night. We call that First Amendment Friday. We've been doing that for decades. The idea is that every single week, we want every American to be reminded you have First Amendment freedoms. And these days, from the government agencies, including the federal government, they're more at risk than ever before. So while you've still got a chance, sound off at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, why, you're even more well welcome on this program. We always put naysayers to the head of the line. If you disagree with my point of view, just dial me up at 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And another way you can take part, the poll on X. We used to call it the Twitter poll. Now it's the poll on X. Joe Biden's own Department of Justice says that Joe is too senile to be prosecuted. Is he then also too senile to be president of the United States. I'd say yes to that. You can vote any way you like 
at Lars Larson Show on uh, X and also at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined the group a long time ago. You should, too. Just go to AMAC.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better. Better for you and better for America. Your calls now. Let's start out with uh, Joey. Joey, welcome to First Amendment Friday. What's on your mind? I just want to say thank you. Um, you've opened up my eyes to a lot of things. Um, well, thanks. I used to be a Democrat, born and raised Democrat. And I also used to be a naysayer. I used to listen to your show a couple of years back, and I was like, this guy's nuts. What is he talking about? <laughs> but I've come to actually respect your view, and I listen to you all the time, and I agree with the majority of everything you say. Thank so you. I want to say thank you. Sure. And apologize to America. I was one of those Biden voters, and I apologize. I made a mistake. It won't happen again. Well, I'm glad to hear that as well. You also told the producer you wanted to say something about trans people. Yeah, I'm wondering if it has something to do with like uh, population control. Because I mean, I once guess... you get the surgery, you can't have no, you can't reproduce at that time anymore, can you? I mean, yeah, it's just that the the numbers are so small right now. I mean. And, and I say that having said that transgender, the estimate of transgenders in the population was maybe two-thirds of one percent. But now we're hearing all kinds of numbers coming out of schools saying that there are, you know, five, ten, twenty percent of kids who say they identify as transgender. Well, maybe, but I have a feeling that for a lot of them, it's a passing fad because you hear about an awful lot of teenagers who they toy with the idea and then and then they quickly move on like they do with so many other things when you're a teenager, right? Right. I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah, well, let's hope. And, uh, Joey, thanks for the kind words. I appreciate the call on a First Amendment Friday. Let's go to Danny. Hey, Danny, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Well, hey there, Lars. Um, <laughs> first of all, I'd like to say so much about so many things, but uh, today I'm calling in about... Um, and I apologize, I'm going to get a little emotional about this. My, uh, this is about the assisted suicide. Oh, okay. Um, when uh, my oldest son was young, uh, he was misdiagnosed with uh, AIDS. Not HIV, but AIDS. AIDS. And his yeah. doctor actually talked to him about suicide. Now, he never, he, he, he never once talked to me about this. I heard this through his friends. Um, that he actually considered it, and it turns out that he was misdiagnosed, and he he didn't have uh, AIDS. He God. didn't. No, he had he, he had Crohn's. How in the world? So it was so <laughs> irresponsibly diagnosed that the specialist that he went to actually filed a complaint, and it led to legal actions with the original doctor. Um, but not everybody's that because Crohn's and AIDS are nothing alike at all. Are they? Uh, well, it, tur it turned out that there was a, something wrong with his stomach lining. That's only found in people with, uh, AIDS, not oh, HIV, but AIDS. That's, and that's what the doctor said. And so, um, through his support group, through friends and family, believe it or not, his girlfriend's family, me, um, uh, even his mom, we we all talked to him about it, and we convinced him to go see another doctor. And through that, we found a specialist, and he was, um, we'll call it grateful that he Thank went goodness. through that. And uh, he ended up actually joining the military and followed in the family tradition. Uh, but he, 
the uh, um, but they actually I, I considered that, it, it, they, you know, the they, they were they were advising him to try it. suicide. Sorry, go ahead. They were advising I, him I'm to sorry, try suicide. One more time. Were they advising him to try suicide? They talked to him. At, uh, they talked to him about suicide as an option to relieve his pain, so he could move on about. It. So his family could move on without him being, and I swear to you, this is what they said, according to, you know, everything I heard. Uh, they talked to him about suicide as an option so that their, so that his family could go on without him being a burden. A burden. Yep. And that is what I'm afraid of, because then you've got families who want you to check out. You've got a government that provides your health care that they want you to check out, and everybody has a dog in the fight. Danny, thanks for the call. Let's go to Carrie in Virginia, listening on the great WCHV, home of Joe Thomas. Hey, Carrie, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Oh, hi, Lars. Um, I wanted to ask you, so we have a national debt. Oh, yeah. Who is, who is the debt to? Uh, most who of the... Treasury bills or treasury uh, bills and bonds are mostly sold to Americans. Um, you know, I, they're famously, and I don't have the number, the latest numbers in front of me. There are foreign countries and foreign companies that buy treasury bills, which are basically a form of borrowing. In other words, if you wanted to get, uh, uh, say, you want to buy a million dollar treasury bond, I've never done that, but if you did. You, you know, the government gives you a bond that matures in a period of time, could be years, could be a couple of decades, and you give them a million dollars. So they get the million dollars, you basically get a note. In a lot of ways, it's like a government IOU. And so the vast majority of those are held by uh, investment firms in the United States. And that it could be in your 401k, could be partly in treasury bills. Uh, and, and then China is, I think, still the biggest foreign national holder of them. But there are a lot more Americans who are holding, and, and American entities and companies that hold them, and banks, uh, than, than China. China holds, I think, it's close to a trillion dollars, I believe, in debt. But our total debt is about $34 trillion. So what's the, why did you want to know? Uh, I'm just curious because I've heard over time that uh, President Lincoln and President Kennedy both were uh, in the process of basically printing our own money, which I guess we have the right to do, and that at some point in history that changed to we can't print our own money. It's this Federal Reserve. Which the Federal Reserve is, it, is it, sort of the... Private Private, it's, uh, it's, it's partly private and it's partly government. It's a weird animal, and I wish we could get rid of it, and we should. Carrie, thanks very much. Back in a moment, we're going to talk to our movie guy, that's Christian Toto, coming up next on The Lars Larson Show. Fix stupid. Stupid is forever. But you surely can vote them out. Stupid, 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 st
This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a First Amendment Friday night. Glad to get to your calls, too, at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you to the head of the line. You want to send an email to talk at LarsLarson.com, and you can vote in our Twitter poll, or Poll on X is the new name, uh, because they changed the name under Musk, uh, to the Poll on X. Joe Biden's own Department of Justice says he's too senile to be prosecuted. Is he too senile to be president then? I would say yes to that. Uh, today's poll on X can be found at Lars Larson Show. And when it comes to movies, we always turn to my friend uh, Christian Toto. And before we actually talk about movies, I'm curious about Christian's take about some of the strange uh, developments this week in American politics. Christian, welcome back. Well, we've entered idiocracy officially. And what I what I found most amusing is that I thought... Every time you think this is it, this is the moment where we have to acknowledge the fact that our president is compromised. We read a headline in the L.A. Times that says that Biden's age is his superpower. So, you know, that's I mean, you you run out of words. Well, it, it was just crazy this week, though, to see the Biden DOJ come out and say, yes, he committed crimes, fairly serious crimes with classified docs. Uh, but no, we would not recommend indicting him because he's too senile to be indicted. So we suggest you just let him get away with the crimes. And then the Biden White House coming out today saying, why, this is a political attack on the president. I thought it's one thing when Trump says stuff about Biden and they say that's a political attack. It's another thing when they're saying the political attack is coming from where your own Department of Justice. How exactly did that happen? It's hard to it's hard to fathom what's happening right now, but uh, it'll make a great movie one day. Yeah. yeah. Oh, see, I've been suggesting screenplays for a while, Christian, and you're going to write this one up, right? That's uh, my plan. Okay. Idiocracy two. Let's talk about Out of Darkness. And and I I loved what you wrote about this because I've gotten tired of the tropes that you mentioned, you know, where it's 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 always a, pr- a young, pretty cast of people in a horror movie, and they always do predictable things. And Out of Darkness promises to uh, to invent something relatively new, which which is is great for Hollywood, I think. Yeah, it's a very clever idea. The movie is set forty five thousand years in the past, so we're talking about tribal living. There are no amenities. It is a it is a caveman esque situation, and right away that makes a horror movie feel fresh and different and, and you know, uh, exciting in a way. And the story itself isn't uh, completely up to the task. There are some dead spots for sure. But, you know, you've got this, this little tribal enclave, and they're trying to move to a new land where they hope they'll find shelter and find you know, animals to, to they could eat, things like that. And all of a sudden there's something out there that seems to be stalking them and maybe hunting them. So great setup. You know, I, I, this is a first-time filmmaker. I, I, his name is escaping me, but I think he does a really credible job of setting up the situation. And like I said, because it's so distinct, it, it gets your attention. I, you know, there are, some, there are some revelations I didn't think make sense. I think they're, they're grasping at some, uh, trying to see the bigger picture here, which I don't think that was successful. But overall, you know, I'm a big horror fan. So when you have something that's novel, that they're trying to do something different, I, I'm all for it. I'm talking to Kristen Toto, who's the host, of course, of the Hollywood and Toto podcast, and we love getting his insights on movies. So I got to ask you this: no, no spoiler alerts or anything, 
But when you have a movie set 45,000 years ago, uh, what language are they speaking? And if they're not speaking a language, do they have to pull off the even harder stunt of making a movie where you simply understand what people are trying to get across without being able to understand a single word they say? You know, they are speaking a language. It uses subtitles. I don't reckon, I don't know what that language was, honestly, whether it was concocted for the movie or it was a derivation of an existing, you know, ancient language. I don't know, but it works. But what I think was so interesting, because the characters react in very, I don't want to say animalistic way, but primitive ways. And so, you know, in modern life, if you're threatened, if your family is under duress, you behave in certain ways because of the culture and right. because of biology. Yeah. But here it's more biologically driven, and I thought that was really interesting as well. And there is a bit of a, a feminist spin here, which I thought was a little uh, smidge 21st century. I think they could have maybe uh, done it in a more authentic fashion, but it, it doesn't hurt the movie at all. It is interesting, and uh, you know it has a point of view, so I, I don't want any of that. Well, and, and what's funny about that, Chris, I don't know whether you, whether it would be a spoiler if you mentioned how they get across this feminist point, but, I mean, one of the things we're wrestling with right now in America is, you know, the whole trans issue, and it's because men, in general, are bigger physically than women. And you say in modern society that doesn't make as much difference, but I would guess that 43,000 years ago, somebody who was bigger and, and more physically capable played a different role for purely biological reasons, not because of technology or what college degree you had or anything like that, but because it was a physical necessity uh, to be able to have strong people uh, within a society, or have they just sort of made them all equal, uh, you know, which does sound very 21st century. Right. No, I don't think they've done that. I, I, I think there is an ascendancy of one of the characters that maybe speaks to what I'm talking about. But it, it does come across that there is a patriarch, that he is the leader, that he is brave, maybe even foolhardy at times. And so that is definitely part of the story. And so, I, you know, I don't want to ding this filmmaker, because I do, I do think, generally speaking, it has an authenticity. Listen, we don't know what life was like back then. It's, it, it's up to the storyteller to create something that feels genuine and feels like it's of one piece and i think for the most part the film does that with some minor minor exceptions now let me ask you something do you think this is a one-off i don't mean for this particular director but is this the kind of thing where you know we all saw when science fiction kind of evolved in the 70s it went from cheap and cheesy to actually take take this serious with the advent of star wars and alien and and movies like that does this one is this one good enough that you could see other filmmakers saying hey I want to set one in that same kind of, uh, you know, that same kind of genre. Well, I'd love to see filmmakers expand the canvas of horror, and I think they could use this as a template of sorts. But this is also a pretty small film. It's not getting a lot of attention. I fear it'll come and go in theaters. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to root for it aggressively. It's not my job. But I, I think any time a filmmaker takes a chance and, and goes in a different direction, it is noteworthy. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, there are moments in time where a certain film sparks a different direction. I just don't think this is going to get the spotlight enough to make that happen. Last thing I wanted to ask you about before we have to let you go, and that is Angel Studios, because I first noticed them with The Chosen and a few other projects they were doing, and I thought, oh, okay, I hope, I hope they do well. It seems that they're persisting and that they're coming up with a lot of other products. I mean, most it's all streaming at this point for the most part, but is, is Angel Studios doing well, and do you see it having a, a long-term future? I think so, only because they seem to really know their audience, 
They've gotten a few hits right out of the gate. Of course, Sound of Freedom has overperformed yep. dramatically. And it's going to kind of, you know, for if they bomb the next two or three times, they, they have a cushion. Because that movie made a lot of money, and they work on a lower budget scale. But they do have other films coming in theaters. Cabrini, I don't know enough about it to share it with you, but that's coming fairly soon. There are some other titles. So I think they're going to be bouncing between TV and streaming and also uh, feature films as well. So I think they have a hand in a lot of different avenues, and I think they are one to watch. They, you know, when you come out of the gate so strong, when you have a sense of what the audience is missing in the theaters right now and in, on the small screen, then I think you're halfway there. Well, I love the fact that they they seem to have had a sensible, you know, they're they're choosing stuff sensibly. Whereas occasionally you'll see somebody who has big piles of money, you know, a streaming service, and they seem to blow it on stuff that that evaporates very quickly. Angel seems to have more staying power to me. Christian, thanks so much. I appreciate the time. Thanks. That is Christian Toto, the ho- the host of Hollywood in Toto, the podcast. Glad to have you with me on a First Amendment Friday. Let me tell you this. With Taiwan's recent election victory by Lai Cheng-Ti, the Democratic Progressive Party's presidential candidate, and no, it doesn't mean what Democratic Progressive means in the United States, is the island going to move closer to independence or continue with the existing status quo, time to stand off the Chinese communists of the mainland? We're going to talk about that with our friend Miles Yu coming up next, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. John Kennedy gets it. Mr. President, you just got to try harder not to suck. Well said, Mr. Kennedy. We agree. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a First Amendment Friday. Always glad to get your calls, too, at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can vote in our poll on X, which used to be called Twitter. Uh, the poll question today has to do with whether or not if Joe Biden is too senile to be prosecuted, according to his own DOJ, is he too senile to be president? You can vote on that as well. It's a pleasure to welcome Welcome back, Miles Yu, who's the senior fellow and director of the China Center at the Hudson Institute. Miles, good to have you back. Thank you for having me, Lars. So we've had the election recently of the new president of Taiwan, and it appears that this new president is going to be a, uh, should I call the president a, a staunch Taiwanese nationalist? Is that the best way to describe this person? I, uh, you know, um, it's a, uh... You know, when you call somebody a nationalist, uh, of course, you know, in terms of substance, uh, he is. He's proud of his country. He's proud of the uh, institution that brought him to presidency. But, uh, you know, uh, when China called uh, president-elect Lai Qingde, William Lai, a nationalist, is actually uh, supposed to be a attack word. So, <laughs> I <know>. um, <laughs> so I don't think that's a, yeah. So this, uh, this, is, this is basically, you know, uh, you, uh, how politics is played in different kind of a political context. It's funny because the the terminology screws us up. He's actually with the Democratic Progressive Party, 
which in America would mean you were Chuck Schumer or, uh, you know, or AOC. But in, but in Taiwan, the Democratic Progressive Party is the one that believes in maintaining Taiwan's independence from mainland China and being very staunchly anti-communist, right? Well, I think, you know, uh, uh, let me put it this way. Uh, Taiwan politics has evolved quite a bit since the late 1970s and particularly after uh, uh, President Jiang Jingguo uh, passed away, he passes baton to a new generation of Taiwanese politicians, uh, headed by uh, former President Li Denghui. Now, Li Denghui really is the father of Taiwanese democracy. So he introduced not only the, uh, the practice of a democratic election, but also he participated in some kind of a pretty like a far uh, uh, cited uh, vision uh, about the future of Taiwan. So eventually right now, the issue of independence or in unification is not really that kind of a big deal because every party who participates in the democratic process in Taiwan recognize the future of Taiwan is going to be decided by Taiwanese people themselves. And uh, so Taiwan basically, um, everybody wants to maintain status quo. So the key issue is what is the status quo? And the consensus, or near consensus, I might say, is status quo is independence. Now, where is he going to take the country then? Where, where do you think he's going to change things, if if change at all? I think, you know, the uh, the sheer reality is that uh, Taiwan faces a, uh, a existential threat from China. That has been there for decades. So no matter which political position you take, you will always have to come to that uh, sheer reality. So for that, you not only have to stick to your principle, but also there is a great amount of practicality involved. So I think, you know, a, a president-elect Lai, when he was younger, he was a politician appealing to sort of a, this concept of nationhood, the, the pride of being Taiwanese. Uh, so he was known as some kind of firebrand. But now, after serving four years as vice president under the very uh, sophisticated and skilled politician, uh, incumbent uh, president, outgoing president, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, he has become, uh, uh, he has transformed himself from a firebrand uh, to a statesman. So if you look at his, uh, his speeches after, uh, during the campaign and after the, uh, the, the election, he, he made some very, very good speech that uh, both uh, uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, conforms to Taiwanese reality, uh, but also uh, um, uh, is very practical. So you make uh, all sides uh, kind of uh, feel comfortable with him, I might say. I mean, uh, as, long as, uh, as long as China don't be uh, pretty uh, picky and, and, and pesky. And then sometimes, they, China, sometimes there's no issue. China wants to pick an issue to fight it. Yeah, and it sounds like they're they're kind of looking for an excuse right now. Miles, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. No problem. That is Miles Hughes from the Hudson Institute. It is First Amendment Friday. I want to go to a naysayer, and that's Alma. Alma, welcome to the program. You know how much we love naysayers on this program. What do you and I disagree about today? Well, we really disagree on this one. We have a very, very apt vice president named Kalama Harris. She can take over on day one. Joe is doing a great job. Couldn't do any better for the poor, for the needy and the poor people and for the country. And Trump didn't even know who Nancy Pelosi was. And then after he knew who she was, he didn't know where she was in the Congress or the Senate. And then nobody said, and then he can't even come back for five. 
Now, now hold on, Alma. Can you tell me this? When you say Joe, I'll take you at your word. Joe Biden is doing a great job. Can you tell me yes. one thing, one major thing he's done that was positive for America in the last three years? Oh, my God, I, I could go down the line. No, no, just give me the biggest one. In. Give me wait, the wait, biggest, wait. best thing he's you. done. Okay. I'm going to tell you, when he walked in that White House, it was the best thing he did for the American people. He opened up medicine where we can get out. I'm a diabetic, right? And I can get my medicine cheap. And if, if, if the Republicans get in there, they're going to cut up all that. He went to the student laws and, and, and helped the students. Those students out there who holler, they don't like Biden. They better wake the heck up. But Elma, Elma you, you're aware that Donald Trump had already put in place a program that brought the cost of insulin down. Biden came in and revoked the program and recreated the problem and then solved the problem. I mean, that was a joke. And as for giving away, you know, paying off, why should the rest of American taxpayers pay the student loan debt of young men and women who took on loans to get an education? And whether they got it or not, that's up to them. Why should the rest of Americans, 70% of whom have never had a shot at a college degree, why should they pay the bill for these deadbeat students who don't, don't want to pay? Are you, you're wrong, Lars, and you're a great guy, you're a Christian. Why would you call them deadbeat? They uh, anybody who doesn't pay his know. bills is a deadbeat in my book. Now, would you agree? Okay, for the greater good of society. But look at, look at uh, Trump. He haven't paid anything. He got that $83 million he don't want to pay. He got all these. He, he was taking well, hold money on. Uh, don't change the sub. Don't change the subject. I want to know. A young man or woman says, "I want to go to college." They borrow a pile of money. Then they get the college that they wanted, and they don't want to pay the money back. Why should we forgive them that debt? Well, why are you saying all of them do that? You pay, paying the whole college. Well, Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden's first proposal. Joe you Biden's first proposal. Does that. Lord, Alma, Joe Biden's first proposal, which was shot down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional, was to pay off half a trillion dollars in debt. I'm not saying everybody, but that's a, that's a lot of debt. They're not, it's a lot of debt. From the, the, what, what did Trump do? Got in there and all that debt he, he had up. Why is it always about Trump? I want to know. He you're telling me that, that Joe Biden's a good guy. Trump gave all the money to the trillion and billionaire. Nothing said about that, Lord. Actually, the, the tax that. cut that was passed by the U.S. Congress and signed by President Trump gave actually the greatest percentage of tax cuts to the low and middle class and, and the smallest percentage cuts to those people at the upper end of the scale. So, but go back to the uh, go back to the student debt. You said paying off student debt was one of Joe's accomplishments. He hasn't managed to do what he first proposed, which was half a trillion dollars. Why should people who never went to college pay off the college debt of deadbeats who don't want to pay their bills? You, why you keep saying them as a progress? Everybody don't not want to pay their bills. Well, everybody who doesn't want to pay a bill that they took on in my book is a deadbeat. Alma, you're a great naysayer. Thanks for the call. Back in a moment, it's First Amendment Friday, and you've got the Lars Larson Show.
wise words from President Reagan. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. We the people are the driver. The government is the car. And we decide where it should go. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on First Amendment Friday. I'll get back to your calls in a moment, but i got to tell you about this. So you've got the DOJ. This is Joe Biden's DOJ that in, assigns a special investigator, Mr. Herr, uh, to go out and investigate Joe Biden's theft of classified documents. Now, I know I'm going to get a bunch of nasty emails saying, Lars, they didn't say he stole the documents. Well, let me put it to you this way. If somebody takes something that they have no right under law to take, like your car or your wallet, and then they keep it, I call that theft. I think the U.S. Code may have a different description of it. But when Joe Biden, 50 years ago, in 1974, was a United States senator, he took classified documents from the government where he worked as a U.S. senator, and he took them home. How do I know this? Because Joe Biden has done television interviews in which he said, oh, I've been doing this since 1974, taking home classified documents. So you take something that does not belong to you. You then hang on to it, and then, in violation of other laws, you decide to share classified documents with people who have no business seeing them at all. Well, the special counsel's report uh, came back uh, yesterday, about 380 pages of it in total. It was very, very detailed. And what they said was, Joe Biden willfully took classified documents. That is against the law, and I'll get into some of the details And what does the White House do? They immediately come out and they try to say, no, 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 you read it wrong. Now, this is one of the worst cases of gaslighting I've ever seen, where the White House counsel comes out to say, "Uh, no, no, we've read the report, too. It absolutely cleared Joe Biden that he did nothing wrong. Take a listen to Ian Sams from the White House counsel's office. The special counsel decided that there was no case there. Notably, he said this would be true whether President Biden was president or a private citizen. The special counsel's assignment when he was appointed was to determine whether any criminal conduct occurred. He found it didn't. That was the finding. The case is closed. Now, that's Ian Sams. He says case closed, no wrongdoing. Let me read what the special counsel actually wrote. Biden willfully retained and disclosed classified materials, including classified materials that, quote, implicating sensitive intelligence sources and methods. That is against the law. That is not case closed. Then Sam says that he believes that Biden believes that he did everything right in his mishandling of classified documents. No, he did not. Take a listen to Ian Sam's talking about how serious this was. Because the president takes classified information seriously. He always has. He did not intentionally take classified documents. He understands documents like that belong with the government. He never, never made any attempt to obstruct. Now, hold on a second. So he says that as president, Joe Biden took classified documents or takes classified documents seriously. You mean the classified documents that he says he never even knew he had, which I think is provably a lie, because Joe Biden would have you believe, and today uh, in the press conference that he held last night, Joe Biden said, well, he threw his staff under the bus, basically, because he said, well, I had these things, but I didn't know they were there. 
Somebody brought them home to my office. Now, I want you to consider something. Joe Biden left the vice president's office seven years ago, and he was out of politics for about two years. So the documents get moved to his home. Then he gets a job with the university, uh, with UPenn. UPenn is a private college, and Joe Biden was brought on as a professor, and he brags about how he was a professor at UPenn, even though he never taught any classes. He never wrote any articles or did any research. He got paid a million bucks for just nothing more than having his name there. But what UPenn also did was two things. Right after Joe Biden goes to work for them, guess what happens? The Chinese communists put tens of millions of dollars into the University of Pennsylvania. That's one. Then two, University of Pennsylvania, which is paying Joe Biden a million bucks for doing exactly nothing, says we're going to sponsor and pay for the cost of the Biden, the uh, the uh, Penn Biden Center is what they called it. Where did the money come from to pay for it? Well, like I said, as soon as they brought Joe Biden on, the Chinese communist money bags opened up and they got tens of millions of dollars. My recollection is it was somewhere between 30 and 40 million dollars in donations that mysteriously come into UPenn right after Joe Biden goes on the payroll for a million dollars for doing nothing. And what do they find in the closet at the UPenn Biden Center, the ChiCom funded think tank that Joe Biden maintained while he was a professor at University of Pennsylvania. They find stacks of documents. And Joe would have you believe, yeah, these all these boxes of things got moved out of the vice president's office to my home and then from my home to UPenn. And then somebody just mysteriously finds all these documents in my closet. And when did they find them? They found them after the FBI had raided Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago. And why is that important? Well, let me point this out to you. You've got Joe Biden, who the special counsel says willfully retained and disclosed classified materials, including sensitive intelligence sources and methods. But the DOJ says because Joe is so senile that he can't, they don't use the word senile because they said his memory is so poor that he could not remember when he was vice president, which, as I said, is seven years ago. He could not remember when his son died, which is nine years ago. He regularly and routinely mixes up foreign heads of state. In the last week, Joe Biden has come out and told reporters that he remembers meeting one foreign head of state who he identified as the president of uh, uh, chancellor of Germany, when in fact he meant the president of France. He also misidentified another head of state, you know, and, and misidentified him as well. He's been dead as well, and he was dead before Joe Biden ever became president, so Joe couldn't have possibly met him as president of the United States. And then last night, Joe Biden holds this news conference in which he tries to repair the damage that's been done by a DOJ report from his own Department of Justice. In other words, He's saying that his own DOJ is attacking him by suggesting that he is so out of it, he remembers almost nothing, and he gets into talking about other things. He says, why, I was the person who was negotiating with the president of Mexico about getting more aid to the people in Gaza. And all of us watching it went, hold on a second. You don't negotiate with Mexico against Gaza, about Gaza. 
You're talking about Egypt, Joe, except somehow you've mixed up Egypt and Mexico, and you can't figure out which end is up and which end is down. But the White House counsel would say, no, they cleared him. He did no wrong. Only that's not what they said. They said he did things that were illegal. We can't prosecute him because a jury would take too much sympathy on a doddering, senile old fool like Joe Biden. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. It's Friday, Friday. Yes, Friday. Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday. Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. We will make America great again. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS to speak your mind. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Yeah, that's Joe Biden. And last night he was trying to, well, he was trying to correct some things because he felt that he had been attacked and attacked not by Donald Trump, attacked not by MAGA Americans, that Joe Biden was attacked by his own Department of Justice. And in fact, his White House counsel came out today to say why the president has come under attack from his own Department of Justice. And they talked about all the indignity of it, suggesting that Joe Biden has a bad memory. You know, like when he remembered that the president of Mexico was helping him get aid to Gaza. Yeah, stuff like that. Anyway, welcome to First Amendment Friday, my favorite day of the week. I got a few things to say about that special counsel report, which came out yesterday, and about President Joe Biden's attempt to try to clean up the train wreck with a late night press conference. Never actually a good idea with Joe Biden. He doesn't do well in press conferences to begin with. I mean, if you're thinking about somebody who can actually handle a press conference, you're thinking about the last president of the United States, Donald John Trump. They don't put Joe in front of cameras. They haven't since the campaign. They kept him in his basement. They had him campaign from uh, behind closed doors. They barely let him see reporters. The last time he did a sit-down interview was some time ago. He does not routinely take questions from reporters. And now, well, the chickens are coming home to roost. Anyway, welcome to the program. If you want to jump in to what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's always right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. So Joe's presser last night was a train wreck. But let me tell you what really matters about all of this. What matters is the theft of classified documents. And when the theft was carried out by a man who now sits in the Oval Office and is president of the United States because of a fraudulent election, then it's even worse. Joe Biden's own Department of Justice has now decided that Joe Biden is too senile to prosecute. Not that there's not a, a case there. And even though the White House tried to do that and say that today, the special counsel's report says there is a case there. Joe Biden willfully took classified documents. He took them to his home. He himself has admitted doing this as long ago as 50 years ago in 1974. And he hung on to those documents. But worse than that, 
Biden brags that he took those classified documents way back when he first became a United States senator. And by the way, if you're wondering, U.S. senators have no authority to take classified documents out of the government, take them home and hang on to them for the next several decades. So Biden held this disastrous news conference last night to deny what his own Department of Justice has actually confirmed. He stole classified documents, he kept them, and he shared them with folks who do not have a security clearance. Now, I call that theft. U.S. Code calls it a crime, but special counsel Robert Herr, even though he works for the Biden DOJ, even though he came to the conclusion after more than 300 pages of a report that was put together after an investigation of Joe Biden's theft of classified documents, he said there's a case there. The problem is if you bring it in front of a jury, they're going to look at this, to quote from the report, elderly old man with a bad memory. So how dim is Joe Biden? What did the report show? Joe Biden's vice presidency ended only seven years ago, but Joe can't remember when he was vice president. He actually said in 2009, uh, was I still the vice president? No, you had just begun to be vice president in 2009 after the 2008 election. Anybody who follows politics knows that. He also questioned, was I still vice president in 2013? Yep, Joe, you had three more years to go at that point, but apparently he can't remember something that happened just over a decade ago. He also could not remember within a year or two when his son, his much-beloved son, Bo, who he mentions constantly, he couldn't remember when Bo Biden died nine years ago. Can't remember stuff from nine years ago. And that's not the only thing he can't remember. This week, Joe Biden told reporters about meeting two major world leaders, only the people he described in one case had died years ago, in the other case had died three decades ago. But he remembers meeting them after he became president. He misidentified the president of France as the president of Germany. Last night, he told reporters that he was negotiating with the president of Mexico to get aid into Gaza for the Palestinians. He actually meant the president of Egypt. Well, you know, Egypt, Mexico, what's the difference? Can you imagine Democrats this summer renominating Joe for four more years of weekend at Bernie's? The 25th Amendment, by the way, allows removal of a president for incapacity. And yes, I'm well aware that that sticks America with cackling Kamala. But stupid may be better than senile. Now, let me go to the presser from last night, just a couple of sound bites. I want to illustrate for you what exactly is going on. Here's a president who absolutely rejects the notion that he's senile or has a bad memory. Take a listen to this. I know there's some attention paid to some language in the report about my recollection of events. There's even reference that I don't remember when my son died. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. Wasn't any of their damn business. Well, hold on a second. You are the president of the United States. There is actually a 25th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that provides that you can be removed over your objections if your cabinet and your vice president and the House of Representatives agree that you are incapable of doing the job, you can be removed. So it's actually very, very relevant. Listen to Joe Biden talking about the report's description of him as an elderly man with a bad memory. 
I'm well-meaning, and I'm an elderly man, and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president, and I put this country back on its feet. He put the country back on its feet. I'm not aware of that. Actually, I saw him put the country into the ditch. I saw him run inflation to insane levels. I saw him more than double the home mortgage interest rate. I saw him create an economy that is actually punishing to everybody. And I saw him take the U.S. government deficit to $2 trillion. If that's what he means by back on his feet, but let me get back to Joe Biden, too, or to uh, Bo Biden as well. Bo Biden was Joe Biden's son. He died of brain cancer here in America. Now, Joe runs around the country telling people that his son died in the Iraq war. But he has a rosary to remind him of his son. Test let me tell you something. Some of you have commented. I wear since the day he died, every single day, the rosary he got from Our Lady of... Our Lady of what? Every Memorial Day, we hold a service remembering him, attending by friends and family and the people who loved him. Yeah. So the rosary that he wears every day to remind him of his son, the son he can't remember when the son died, and the rosary he can't remember the name of the church where he got it nine years ago. It's First Amendment Friday. Glad to be with you. You want to vote in our poll on X. It has to do with whether or not it's time to pull the plug and remove Joe Biden and replace him with somebody else. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Senator John Kennedy on the Washington establishment. The Washington establishment is working harder than an ugly stripper to cover up whatever happened. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on First Amendment Friday. First, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. If you want to send an email instead, talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our poll on X. Uh, used to be called Twitter. Now it's the X. So uh, we're calling it the poll on X. In any case, the question is there every day at Lars Larson Show. You can also find it on my website at LarsLarson.com. And you got to ask yourself, why is the government, in this case, the federal government, but aided and abetted by state governments, why are they trying to drag young workers into communism? And I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm talking about. It has to do with tips. And uh, I'll get to that in just a moment. First, welcome to the program. If you want to jump in to the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you happen to be a naysayer, that is, you disagree with me, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can vote in our poll on X. We used to call it the Twitter poll. Now it's X. Here's the question today. Joe Biden's own Department of Justice has decided that even though 
He willfully committed crimes. He stole classified documents. He held on to those classified documents, and he shared those classified documents with people who didn't have the security clearance to see them. In fact, one of them was to aid and abet his ghostwriter as he was doing his memoir, since an awful lot of uh, you know former presidents and vice presidents make millions of dollars by writing a book that they don't actually write. So he was sharing classified documents. He committed crimes. But his own DOJ says that Joe Biden is too senile, that he has no memory for recent things or distant things, that he doesn't remember when he was vice president, and that was only seven years ago. He doesn't remember when his son died. That was only nine years ago. Is he too senile for the presidency? Glad to get your vote in that. Just go to at Lars Larson Show on X, also on our website at LarsLarson.com. And already there are calls to use the 25th Amendment, which ordinarily deals with secession if a president dies an untimely death. But in the case of the 25th Amendment, it was it was a change that allowed a president to be removed over his own objections for in, what they call incapacity. So in other words, if Joe Biden is too senile to be able to be president, others within the government, including his cabinet officers, the vice president, and members of the House of Representatives could decide to remove him. Is it time to deploy the 25th Amendment? And I understand the objection that some of you are going to raise, that we get stuck with cackling Kamala Harris, the current vice president, becomes the president of the United States. And you're right. She's pretty dumb. I mean, her approval ratings are even lower than Joe's approval ratings, and Joe's approval ratings with Americans are rock bottom right now. Yes, you get stuck with Kamala Harris. So does the Democrat Party. And I guess you'd have to ask yourself, is it worse that Joe Biden is senile and somebody else is clearly calling the shots, think Barack Hussein Obama, or would it be worse to have somebody who's as dumb as a bag of hammers like Kamala Harris? I don't know. It's kind of flip a coin, six of one, uh, half dozen the other. Glad to take your calls, though, at 866-HEY-LARS. Let me tell you about this tip thing, though, because I've never held a tip job in my life. Uh, but Tina and I will give tips for good service. In, in fact, over the years, we've been very, very generous with some people when we're very impressed. And we very rarely ever said we're not going to leave a tip at all. But I got to tell you about one of the things that irritates me the most about tipping is that whether you see it happening or not, in many places, if you see a young man or woman who gives very, very good service, could be a restaurant, could be a bar, could be a number of occasions, and you say, I want to give this person a tip, except that if the restaurant or the bar has a tip sharing program, where the, all of the waiters, all the service people uh, end up putting their tips in together, and then they divide up the money among all of the workers, you're not giving a tip to that person. You're giving it to the group. And it may be that there are people in that group who are absolutely terrible at their jobs. And it may be that there are people who are great at their jobs, and yet they're all going to share equally in the tips. That part I knew was in existence, and I've always disliked it. And I've told wait people, I've said, look, if I give you a tip, does it actually go to you? You're going to end up sharing it with somebody else. What I didn't know was this. Number one, the U.S. government says that if the restaurant or bar has a tip sharing program, all those tips have to be shared equally, number one. And number two, the people who are in management, supervisors and managers, may not participate 
in the tip sharing program. Now, uh, recently, there have been a number of restaurants and pizza joints and things like that who've all been tagged by the government that says you're illegally taking people's tips because you have a tip sharing program, but all the wait staff get a share, but so do the managers and the supervisors in some case, and you're not allowed to include those people. Now, you understand what's going on. In some ways, it allows a restaurant or a bar or some other kind of service company to pay their staff less because they know that their customer is going to make up the difference. That's problem number one. Problem number two, when you share tips, you effectively say to the young man or woman who's providing great service that your big tip, your generous tip, is going to be shared with a bunch of people who don't do their job nearly as well as you do. And then when the government says, we will tell the employer how the tips are allowed to be shared. Now, I've talked to wait staff over the years, and they said, oh, if, if you're a good waiter or waitress, you make a big pile of money in tips. But you're supposed to tip out the busboy, and you should tip out the clerk or the, the, the cook. And uh, you should probably tip out the maitre d', the person who's standing at the front who walks you to your table. Uh, and if you don't do that, they don't appreciate it very much, but it's your decision. I think that's at least a lot more honest than having any kind of tip sharing. But now that they've said we're going to put tip sharing into federal labor law and insist that all tips have to be shared equally, that is a form of communism. Because what they're saying is doesn't matter if you work hard or if you don't work hard at all, no matter whether you get a big bunch of tips or a small bunch of tips, everybody gets paid the same. And I think that's just dead wrong. It should not be happening that way. In any case, I thought I'd start us off with that. It is First Amendment Friday. Let's go first to Rob. Hey, Rob, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? So I don't disagree with you, but the disagreement part of the whole thing, which you were mentioning in the last segment of the DOJ, essentially forgiving the idiot in the office for having dementia and forgetful, he came on, I mean, he was on, uh, I can't remember if it was on last night, but I saw him yesterday. Yeah, saying, the press conference I'm perfectly last fine. Night. My memory is great. So, you know, what's, what's going on well, here? Well, let me tell you the something, DOJ Rob. Says one thing well, and he no, says let the me other. tell you something. He starts into a story, my memory is great, because they said he didn't even remember when his son died, which was only about uh, 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 nine years ago yeah. is when his son died. And he said, because I carry a rosary with me every day that we got from the lady of the, and then you see him go blank. So you say he's trying to prove to Americans he has a really solid memory of his son's passing and the artifact that he carries with him, that rosary, except he can't remember where it came from. He can only remember it was some church that starts with a lady of. You know, this guy has lost it. And he demonstrates that. He held that press conference to try to demonstrate to everybody last night that he still got a firm grip on his memory and his mind, and then he proved that he didn't. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's always right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. We've always done it. We always will. If you want to send an email, talk at LarsLarson.com. You can also vote in our poll on X. It used to be called Twitter. Now it's X. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. And you can check out our Instagram feed, all the other social media we we put up every single interview on the program is free of charge. You'll find it at LarsLarson.com.
The Lars Larson Show. Small-town politics with big-town opinions. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I want to talk about doctor-assisted suicide. Now, I happen to have made my home for a long time in the state of Oregon, which had doctor-assisted suicide, uh, apparently the first government on planet Earth, although there more recently we may have found out there was a country that had uh, official doctor-assisted suicide. There were a lot of countries on planet Earth that kind of did it with a wink and a nod, but Oregon was the first place where it was fully legalized as state-sanctioned murder of people who were terminally ill. And then we've been watching as Canada has gotten crazier and crazier with its doctor-assisted suicide. And now Wesley Smith, our friend who writes uh, for uh, for National Review, among other places, he's a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. And he's saying that the Democrats are on the verge of creating functional, nationalized assisted suicide. Wesley, welcome back. Thanks, Lars. It's good to talk to you again. I've never kept my audience in the dark. I'm against suicide, period. And it's not just faith beliefs, it's other beliefs as well, but my faith factors into that too. Uh, but, but even if, even if my faith didn't lead me that direction, I'd look at the way that doctor assisted suicide has worked out or not worked out. And I think it's mostly the latter rather than the former. But what are the Democrats proposing to do that might turn us into a country with doctor assisted suicide? How's that going to happen? Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, they've always tried to, na- I'm not saying just Democrats, but the, the euthanasia activists have always tried to nationalize uh, this agenda. In fact, back in 97, they brought a case to the United States Supreme Court, Glucksburg v. Washington, seeking a Roe v. Wade for assisted suicide. Instead, uh, the court ruled 9-0, to zero, which is pretty rare, uh, in a controversial issue, um, that there is no constitutional right to assisted suicide. And the deep irony there is that the Glucksburg case, which uh, I actually wrote an amicus brief in that case uh, for the court, uh, became the primary precedent for overturning Roe v. Wade. So uh, when they tried to get a, press, a, a Roe v. Wade assisted suicide, it ended up euthanizing Roe v. Wade. But these guys never quit. And so what they're doing now is they're beginning to do away with residential requirements for assisted suicide. Uh, when, when these laws uh, are proposed, we're always told strict guidelines will protect against abuse, one of which is uh, residency, that you, you won't become a place like Switzerland where they have suicide clinics. Well, Oregon, your home state, and Vermont have already overturned the residency requirement that they once had so that somebody from Iowa can go to Oregon or to Vermont uh, and get assisted suicide. Now, what is the state interest of Oregon in having somebody from Iowa or Ohio come to that to Oregon for assisted suicide? None. It's cultural imperialism. Uh, Colorado's... Uh, Legislature is now considering doing away with residency requirements, which would then give uh, a uh, suicide uh, a clinic 
state uh, in the heart of, heartland of the country. Uh, Illinois has an assisted suicide uh, proposal in front of its legislature that does not contain a residency requirement. So what they do is they uh, promise strict guidelines as soon as the law is in, the guidelines that they say were protections suddenly become obstacles and they start to chip away and loosen the regulations to the point that we will end up with Canada if they get their way. Yeah, and in fact, would you mind describing for my audience how far Canada has been willing to go? And in fact, in fact, I think there was one more iteration they were going after and they put it on hold for a while, but they're willing to kill a lot of people who are not terminally ill, aren't they? Yeah, it's estimated that in 2023, 16,000 people in Canada would be euthanized. In 2022, it was 13,000 plus. Canada allows lethal injection euthanasia. Uh, doctors uh, are required to participate in the in the places like Ontario, where if a patient comes and says, I want to be dead and, and qualifies under the law, which is very broad, uh, then the doctor either must do it or must find another doctor willing to do it. They call that an effective referral, so that every doctor in Canada may end up having to be complicit uh, in the taking of innocent human life. Uh, they have conjoined organ harvesting with euthanasia in Ontario and Quebec. If uh, a patient goes to a doctor, asked to be killed, the doctor says, okay, I'll kill you. He, the doctor then contacts the organ procurement uh, organization that calls the patient and says, can we have your liver? Uh the um, original Canada, and it was only in 2015 or so that Canada legalized this because of a court ruling, um, they've gone from reasonable foreseeable of death, which was the standard, to allowing people with, term with terminal illnesses, chronic illnesses, disabilities, frail elderly, et cetera, et cetera. They were going to include the mentally ill uh, last year, it got put off to this year, and it just was recently put off a couple more years because they don't have enough of an infrastructure to actually kill the mentally ill. Uh, it really is a uh, terrible thing. And in Canada, you're now seeing patients who, uh, let's say, diagnosed with cancer, there are at least two cases, who wanted treatment but couldn't get it because of the incredible cues in Canada that had to wait months for their treatment, so opted instead for euthanasia. And, and what that means, I mean, because I don't think Americans really, many of them, will, will recognize just how bad it can be in Canada, where I've seen a few people on Instagram. In fact, there was a young lady who said, yeah, I've got this illness. It's perfectly treatable. I'm in huge pain. But the wait time in Canada may be up to a year. So they say, well, you're going to be in this kind of pain for the next year, or you could kill yourself. And, and you and I both yeah. know we've already seen people who say had cancer and said, can I get treatment for my cancer? Well, I'm sorry, that treatment doesn't pencil out very well. It only buys a few more years for thousands of dollars. So we won't give you that, but we will give you the ability to kill yourself. They're going to give people a Hobson's yeah, choice. I mean, it's They're, actually being killed. It's being killed by a doctor. Not You don't even yeah. have to do it yourself. And uh, also, by the way, back in this country, uh, Vermont, uh, I believe Oregon, too, allows uh, assisted suicide by telemedicine. So somebody from, let's say, Ohio might be able to contact a death doctor in Oregon and, uh, and do all of the procedures, you know, the, invest, you know, the uh, interviews and that kind of thing, send the records to that doctor in Oregon, and then get a prescription and fly to Oregon and be made dead. I would, may perhaps never even having met the doctor. 
So the idea is to expand this and have as many assisted suicides and euthanasias as possible because this is an ideological development. Now, in Canada, they're beginning to talk about all the money they're saving in the healthcare system by killing people instead of caring for them. And if we uh, ever have this take off in the way it has in Canada, that'll be the talk here, too. Well, can you imagine? Uh, I've been telling people that having 10 million new people, most of them uninsured, descend on the country through this border invasion we've had. We're already hearing about hospitals that are saying we're going to be closing or closing up our emergency room because we're overwhelmed by the tsunami of people. And and most of them have no medical coverage whatsoever. So they just show up, they get treatment, and the hospital sinks further into the red ink. That when that happens, that may be the, the thing that the left, you and in this case, I think it is political, the left will use to say, you see, we need a national health care system because we've created the emergency by having this giant invasion and all these people need medical care and we have to provide it. They're going to get it one way or another uh, through either charity care from the hospitals, which ends up being paid for by everybody else, and uh, insurance is too expensive. So they'll declare, well, it's time to go to, uh, you know, nationalized health care like Canada has. And then the state will have a vested interest in seeing if they can make sure they extinguish you soon enough that they save a lot of money. You can read about what he writes, usually posted at National Review, but also at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. He is Wesley Smith, and Wesley, thank you very much for the time. Back in a moment on a First Amendment Friday. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Lots of folks worry about their firearms, but Lars doesn't have to worry about Biden taking his guns. He stores them upstairs. This is the Lars Larson Show. Big iron on his head. I used to be, uh, used to be that to buy an electric car, you had to make all sorts of compromises. But not now. Thanks to American ingenuity, American engineers, American auto workers, uh, it's all changing. Today, if you want an electric vehicle with a long range, you can buy one made in America. If you want one that charges quickly, buy American. If you want one that's fast in the quarter mile, buy American. Now, that was Joe Biden at a special event in Detroit in which he was heralding the arrival of electric vehicles. And you heard what he said. We're going to build them in America. Well, I think there's a little bit of a hitch in his get-along when it comes to Joe Biden's plan for electrifying American transportation. But let me get into the details of that in just a moment. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com, and you can vote in our poll on X. The poll on X, which is duplicated on our website, so don't vote twice. You can find it at Lars Larson Show on X or at LarsLarson.com. Now, there's some brand new news, and I want to tell you about this because this is absolutely unbelievable. They are turning out numbers right now from America's automobile industry, and I want you to listen to this closely because last year, Ford, the Ford Motor Company, major maker of automobiles, 
And they've been doing a lot of electric vehicles as well. Although last fall, they announced, and it was a bit of a surprise, we talked about it on the show, that the Ford Lightning pickup truck, their brand spanking new, new design. I mean, they were pushing this thing like crazy, running ads for it and everything else. They said, come on down and buy a Ford electric pickup truck. The Ford F-150 in electric version would be the Ford Lightning. Guess what happened to Ford in the last year? Ford lost, according to its own company numbers, $4.7 billion while selling electric vehicles last year. Now, I want you to think about that. This is a major company. I mean, sometimes companies take losses. But $4.7 billion in a single year, and that's up from the year before. Because remember, the company had net income of $4.3 billion dollars, They had total revenue, this is the total amount they sold in cars, both gasoline and electric, of $176 billion. Now, remember, if you run a company and you say, wow, we did an amazing amount of business. I mean, for instance, Amazon does a gigantic amount of retail business and they lose money. So there are companies that in some cases will lose money for a period of time to gain market share. Uh, they'll lose money because they're introducing new product lines. But eventually they plan to make money. That's not happening with electric vehicles. I mean, here you have, and, and I know all the people who push the idea of electric vehicles said, well, you have to give them kind of a jump start. Yeah, you know, like with, with a car and a battery and jumper cables, you got to get the business going. But once it's going, it actually makes sense. Last year, Ford Motor Company, according to the new numbers out from their own company via, uh, company numbers that all publicly held companies, stockholding companies, have to tell the public what's going on. So how much money did they make on every electric vehicle that they manufactured and sold to a customer with federal subsidies? Even with the subsidies, Ford lost $64,731 on every single Ford electric vehicle that it made. 60, almost 65 grand. They not only didn't make a profit on them, they lost money. They lost money in gigantic numbers. And that includes federal subsidies. You've got Joe Biden and the federal government saying we're going to install tens, hundreds of thousands of electric vehicle chargers because you understand they wouldn't be selling any electric vehicles unless there was the promise at some point you'd be able to find a, an electric car charging location almost everywhere in America based on population. There are going to be more in the high population areas and less or fewer in the low population areas. It also included a $7,500 check that the government hands out to many of the buyers of EVs. Some companies like Tesla have already run out that game. $7,500 of subsidy and Ford still lost $65,000 on every single EV it sold. There's a brand new estimate out from the Congressional Budget Office. Now, the CBO is supposed to be the nonpartisan source of information about various government programs, and, uh, and, and they largely achieve that. You know, they try not to swing too far to the left or too far to the right. The Congressional Budget Office has just issued what they call a technical revision. I mean, as an example of technical revisions, 
12 months of last year, and every single month they would announce a big jobs number, and then about a month later they'd say, we're having a technical revision of that number. And oftentimes they'd revise the number down anywhere from 30 to 50%. So it'd be like being able to go to your boss and say, hey, boss, we just sold 100 cars. And then you do a technical revision about a month later and say, boss, remember when I told you we sold 100 cars? Well, we only sold 25. That's a technical revision. Do you know the size of their technical revision? It's just short of a quarter of a trillion dollars because the CBO had estimated how much is this going to cost the American taxpayer to push electric vehicles? Well, there's an estimate, except the new estimate with the technical revision is going to be it's going to cost more than we've already budgeted to subsidize these vehicles and get Americans to buy them, even with the free charging, even with the charging locations being paid for by the taxpayer. The Congressional Budget Office says the original estimate of subsidies for electric vehicles. Well, we need two hundred and twenty four billion dollars more than we originally estimated. Now, this comes from technology writer Robert Bryce. Uh, who writes about the particulars in his substack. So how bad is the EV business? Yesterday afternoon, he writes, the Ford Motor Company reported that the operating loss it incurred on EV business in 2023 exceeded its total profit for the year. Now do you know why last fall Ford came out and announced, we're going to take the number of Ford Lightning pickup trucks, we were planning to make about 3,000 a month, so that's only 36,000 vehicles in a year of the EV. So they're a very small number, but they're turning out to be a big loss for Ford. Because in America, Americans buy somewhere between 13 and 16 million brand new vehicles every year. It depends on the economy and a lot of other things. But 13 to 16 million vehicles and about 36,000 of them were going to be Ford pickup trucks. Now the company is going to cut that number in half. And right now, every time they sell a vehicle at a Ford dealership that's an EV, Ford Motor Company is losing about $65,000. And now the car companies are going to tell Joe Biden, hey, by the way, you want to keep up this EV nonsense? You're going to have to pump a ton of money into our business because we're losing money every time we sell an EV. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. You know a veteran in need.